Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. You may have heard about a recent experiment where grown-up people were asked to draw a leader, and time after time, most participants ended up drawing a picture of a man. So soon after the results were published, some clever person reenacted the experiment, but this time by asking young children to draw a leader. And not surprisingly, they sometimes drew pictures of men, but far more often they spotlighted their teachers, their mothers, and even themselves. So kudos to all the kids around the world who clearly possess an unbiased view of who's qualified to become a leader in our 21st century society. On today's show, we're going to be discussing a slightly different but nonetheless important and interesting question. What do successful CEOs really look like? So when we conjure up images of CEOs, if you're like me, we tend to think of larger-than-life figures like Jack Welch and Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs, these bold, charismatic extroverts known as visionary prophets. And in the context of stereotypes like these, we might be influenced to just dismiss our own talents, backgrounds, and abilities, and even write off our chances of ever leading a company of our own. I mean, how could we ever be a CEO in the context of these people? What if I told you that very few CEOs ever attended an Ivy League school, a sizable number have no college degree, more than a third are introverts, and nearly half had a career blow up that was so significant that it either cost them their job or was extremely costly to their own business. So my guest today is Kim Powell, the co-author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, The CEO Next Door, just came out this year. And it's her research that dispels the myth that CEOs are consistently superhuman oracles with these impeccable resumes and blue-blooded pedigrees. And instead, what she and her co-author Elena Botelo have discovered is that what truly characterizes these high-achieving CEOs is that they've really mastered four specific leadership behaviors. And the cool thing is that by learning these same behaviors, we can transform ourselves into world-class leaders as well. Hence, my invitation to her today to be on our show. And by the end of our podcast today, you're going to have a very clear understanding of what these four behaviors are and why they're so important to your leadership growth and your success, regardless of whether or not you dream of running your own organization one day. As a quick introduction, Kim graduated summa cum laude from Notre Dame University and earned an MBA at Northwestern, also with honors. And along with her partner, Elena, she has coached and advised hundreds of Fortune 500 CEOs in their consulting firm, GH Smart. And she joins us from Atlanta, Georgia, where she grew up and still lives. Welcome to the podcast, Kim Powell. Thank you, Mark. I'm glad to be here. Well, Kim, just to get us started, when, when we first connected, you told me in an email that a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into producing your work. And so I thought I'd ask, you know, what motivated you guys to write this and even what may have proved to be the most challenging part of getting it completed? Yeah, it was a, it was a long journey. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but there's two questions in there. One is what motivated us to do the research originally which was really the fuel for the book. And the second is what drove us to sit down and say, yeah, it makes sense to write a tome. And on the research, really it was this disconnect that we were hearing between what both my co-author and I, Elena, were hearing in our day job. So we work for an organization called GH Smart. It's a leadership advisory firm. And we spend our days assessing leaders and supporting boards and execs on their toughest talent challenges. So we're listening to the life stories of leaders in gory detail. And we walk out of those rooms and I scratch my head and Elena did the same saying, you know, this doesn't connect with what we read in the Wall Street Journal or Forbes. It doesn't connect with how CEOs are portrayed in our society, these larger than life icons of leadership. And we thought, huh, like we've got access to a better representation of the 2 million CEOs out there running companies larger than 50 people, not just the Fortune 500 that is most easily accessible and written about. And we thought, what if we could unlock what that really looks like, what these CEOs look and feel like, and how they go through their day jobs and succeed. And maybe we can kind of open the aperture a little bit for people who might not think they're CEO quality, if we can describe what it really looks like day to day. So that's what kicked off, yeah, we want to do this research. And then when the research came back with statistically significant findings, we thought, huh, well, maybe maybe we should get the word out there. Because the reality is you know, the insight and access that we have, and we're a small firm, so there's only 
so many organizations and leaders that can work with us. It's limited. So a book is really a great way to get those insights out there to hopefully help many more individuals who, again, may not think they look or sound or act like CEOs realize the seat is possibly more attainable. Well, I'm just curious as to what you saw. So in your observations in working with you know different CEOs, what was it that wasn't squaring with what we traditionally think CEOs look like? Yeah, there's quite a few myths we dispel in the book based on the research. And a handful that always struck me when I walk out of these assessments with leaders is gosh, you know, this is not a picture of perfection. These are real leaders who gut and grit it out and they make a number of mistakes across their career. We hear about the highs and we hear about the lows and we see them, how they manage and make decisions through the lows. And, you know, what gets put on the cover of, you know, Wall Street Journal, you just don't see that that under the cover reality. And it's easy to think that these people look perfect when they're on a glossy cover. So that's one. I think the other is there's this sense they have a perfect pedigree. CEOs must have a perfect pedigree to get to that station in life, if you will, or level of responsibility. And again, we didn't see that in our research. We saw in our data set that more CEOs did not finish college than actually graduated from an Ivy League school, which, you know, if you're sitting in the seat trying to figure out how you're going to send your kids to an Ivy League and pay for all that. That's actually pretty good news. And then, you know, I think there's a a handful of things around, like, we expect this larger-than-life, charismatic, outgoing individual to be able to lead an organization. And we saw that we had, you know, a third of our CEOs were actually introverts. And we did not see charisma being a differentiator for high performance once you're in the seat. Actually, confidence was statistically associated with being hired, but not related to high performance, which is interesting. Helps get you hired, but doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a high performer. So those are a few. Well, let's talk a little bit about the methodology that you use. So I read the book. I think it's wonderful. And you distilled really insight from 2,600 different executives. So can you give us a quick summary of this process? I, I know there were a lot of Uh, supporting roles from organizations like SAS that kind of helped you run the numbers. But what was your process and how did you end up being convinced that you guys had nailed this? Yeah. So over the last 20 years as an organization, GH Smart has assessed over 17,000 leaders. So our data set is actually quite large. So we took a sample of those. And I think we were convinced it was the real deal, that we were confident in the results because, number one, we pulled together some of the best statisticians, PhDs, and data scientists to study the data that we could find. You know, look, this is not a kid's attempted at home situation. We (laughs) really wanted to pull in the best of the best. So we have a relationship with University of Chicago and Steve Kaplan, as well as SAS, who does all the predictive fraud analytics for credit card agencies and other IRS, et cetera, they know what they are doing in terms of, on the SaaS basis, text-based analytics, and on USC's basis, structured analytics. And we worked with both of them to study this data. So that's number one. The second is that the data is actually pretty unique. We don't know of another data set like this where there's an in-depth behavioral data collected across an executive's career lifespan. And it was collected independently for the purpose of this research. So it's hard to say it was manipulated. You know, most data is a designed experiment to prove a thesis or like a survey that's sent to a thousand leaders. This is someone's accumulated experience. And we had it our fingerprints mm-hmm. in executives' life. It's in we early years, relationships with parents, education, highs and lows across every role, you know, feedback from team, feedback from boss. It's really rich. It was millions of pages of text. And then we had access to boards and bosses to collect outcomes or performance data, which is also really hard to get access to unless it's a public company. And we have a large data set of private companies, which is actually the engine of our economy, at least in the U.S. and in many countries. So we felt really confident that this was a unique, independent data set. And then we unleashed individuals who knew what they were doing to come back and inform us on, yes, there's actually some correlated behaviors that differentiate the high performers. So if I can summarize, again, since I've I've read the book, I know where you guys landed. And essentially, you're saying that highly successful CEOs exhibit the same four behaviors, whether or not they're male or female. And those four behaviors for our audience are, number one, decisiveness, number two, engaging for impact, 
Number three, relentless reliability. And number four, adapting boldly. So what I want to do is I want to take them one at a time. So let's start with decisiveness and give us examples of CEOs who've mastered this and really why this is so important and maybe why it's a limitation for other managers. What holds us back from being decisive? Mm -hmm. Well, first off, it's important to clarify what we saw in the research when we say decisive and to, to kind of paint the scene. I don't know if you remember this movie, Lethal Weapon, but like 1987, Lethal Weapon, the very last scene, if you'll remember, Mel Gibson, Danny Glover hunched over the bomb. I don't know if you remember this, but <laughs> red wire, blue wire, which one do we cut? If we cut the wrong one, mm -hmm. life ends, right? We're going to blow up the building and kill ourselves. And you know, it's the quintessential what you learn in business school. Do you turn left or right and the future of the industry depends on it? And clearly the best leaders make the best decisions. And we call this the myth of the big decision. And what we saw, however, in contrast to that, it's not the big decision. It's the volume and speed of decisions that differentiated the high-performing leaders. It was about the speed more so than the precision on the hundreds of daily decisions that CEOs have to make, which you know, when that came back out of the research, I was like, that's really bad news for me because I happen to be a perfectionist. <laughs> but mm. you know, we saw this play out in two ways most often. One is around priorities and the second is around people decisions. They tend to be the places where people struggle to make high velocity, rapid decisions. And you know, the challenge, I think, when you're at the senior most seat, if you're not decisive, it's like a virus and it affects everyone around you when you're in that leadership role, because either you're role modeling them that, yes, an additional 20 percent of data is always what we should do. And everyone emulates that or they're just waiting for potentially you to make a decision. Interestingly, Amazon, in one of Jeff Bezos' shareholder letters, talked about one-way versus two-way doors, or they have this concept of one-way versus two-way doors, where you know people assume it's a one-way door that you can't go back through, right? The decision is just irrevocable, and it makes people very scared to make them, and timid, and we must have more data before we make this decision, versus two-way doors where you can always, you know, let's go look and see what's through the door. If we don't like it, we'll just, you know, we'll just retract back. And often we're too timid because we mistake two-way doors for one-way doors. And, you know, I think it's very natural in situations with people or priorities to really struggle to get this rapid velocity of decision-making. You know, I would say the best example I'm working with a CEO, I've got, there's plenty of stories in the book, but th there's a CEO I'm working with right now, took over a $600 million, it's actually a private equity backed online retail business. And it was started really cool business. They disrupted in their space when they came online. They had a founder that they replaced with a professional CEO, stabilized the business, built foundation, but got too slow, frankly. And so the board replaced him. I've been working with the new CEO. And in the first, I guess it's been about four months, he replaced the he had roughly 75% of his team and closed a line of business and launched a new product. The amount of decisions that he made in this first four months was more than the prior two years under the preceding CEO. And they missed their financial targets last year, which precipitated the CEO change. And in the first year under this new CEO who accelerated the decision-making, they are exceeding their financial targets that they committed to with the board. And beyond that, it is very palpable in the organization when you walk the halls that there's this sense of excitement and motion and movement and winning that becomes very infectious from a cultural perspective and exciting for people to come to work and feel like they're part of a winning team again. So that's just one example. Well, you know, one of the things that just in listening to you, your examples are absolutely fantastic. And so it reminds me as I'm thinking about decisiveness and people that I've worked with and whether or not they have that quality or not. One of the things that I think that people struggle with in being quick like that CEO and making decisions 
is not just the fear that they're going to make a mistake, but they're going to pay a big price for it because the culture that they work within, even at a CEO, the culture within where you make a bad decision and you've got all these naysayers calling you out really quickly. And so I guess I want to know from you how you recommend. If you've seen these these absolutely fantastic CEOs, the one that you're just describing here who's just moving, 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 and recognizing mm-hmm. this two-way door metaphor, which I think is absolutely absolutely fantastic too. He's mastered this and he's succeeding this way. But many of us are afraid of making tough calls on people like you were describing and take tough calls on whether we stay in a business Mm -hmm. or not. How do I cultivate that? How do I get better at that? How do I get great at that? Yeah. Number one, it's it's hard, but we did. This is a muscle that can be built. Like that was the other thing I loved when we started discussing the research with SAS and UFC is these are really muscles and we have seen leaders over the course of their careers improve. Yeah, the first is obviously, man, with all humanity, there's a key driver, which is safety, right? Safety of a Mm -hmm. safe bet, the safety Mm -hmm. of the person in the role who's doing an okay job and I really like them, but isn't really going to get you to that next level or the safety of what's worked in the past. And to your point, it takes courage to step out of that safe zone. This is actually a trait that underpins decisiveness as well as a behavior we'll talk about in a second around adaptability, but this trait is like the comfort with discomfort is something that these leaders have cultivated across their career. So how do I build courage? I get comfortable with doing things that are uncomfortable. And then it's also how I then treat others that are taking courageous moves in my business that may work for me, right? How do you encourage that? Even if it doesn't work out right, right? How do you learn from those mistakes and treat it as an opportunity to get better as opposed to a personal failure? You, know, In terms of getting like this comfort with discomfort, there's a couple things I saw that I found really intriguing. One is they put themselves in uncomfortable situations really early on in life. There's a great story in the book around Rob Wenger, who's a small technology CEO, who's a massive introvert. And he actively cultivated friendships with extroverts who threw parties and gave him an explicit role. So he would have to engage over and over with people, but he had a purpose behind it. I mean, I've seen him in action in front of large crowds and in front of his staff and in front of the board and in industry conferences you would never describe him as an introvert. And he put himself in uncomfortable situations to work specifically on something, to gain that courage to do things that otherwise might feel impossible for him. I think there's also just the simple recalling past scenarios where you have been successful doing scary things. We all have those, oh yeah, I can remember that. I got to recall the last time I've done it and it worked out okay. Because the reality is we all have loss aversion. Like we fear the loss much more than we appreciate the equivalent potential gain. And so you've got to shift your mindset. Um, And one way to do that is just by reminding yourself when you've done it in the past really effectively. There's a few hacks we saw leaders use, very simple things like the practice of asking a few questions when you feel like you're slowing down or struggling to move forward on a decision. One was, what's the cost really of getting it wrong? What could really happen? I think we often go to the worst case scenario, but if you force yourself to be rational, what is the worst thing that could happen? And is it really a two-way door? (laughs) You think it's a one-way door? The other question is, how much will you slow others down by not deciding? It's not just about you as a leader. So if you can't push through this decision, what does that mean for everyone around you? And then the teams below them and the teams below them. And the last was, if you had to decide in 30 seconds, what would you choose? And how much insider knowledge will you gain by waiting? And will it really impact the answer? Because in in most situations, there's an opportunity to very quickly pivot and learn, pull back through the two-way door and go a different direction. So I think those are a few things that I saw that were powerful for a variety of leaders. There's another part in your book where you talk about this, and this is from Chip and Dan Heath, this idea of 10, 10, and 10, how you'll feel. You want to talk a little bit about that in terms of applying that to decision-making? Because I think it brings you where you're trying to get people, which is if you can sort of project yourself into how this is going to play out and you can see that it's not going to end your life, then you're going to feel a little bit more comfortable with it. So give us a quick summary of that, if you would. Yeah. Interestingly, there's also a quote by, I think it was the founder I think it was a large technology company, very similar thing where he said, I would envision myself 10 years in the future. And I would look back and say, what would I wish 
that I had done in this moment. And it's the same concept with Chip and Dan Heath, which is take yourself out of the given context and project to a different, you know, in 10 seconds, in 10 days or 10 years or 10 decades, whatever time frame you want to choose, how are you going to feel looking back at this decision? Pull yourself out of the current time frame and context and milieu and relationships and recognize what this looks like in the context of a full life or full career or full lifespan of the company or industry. And it allows you then to maybe depersonalize the risk or the sense of loss or the sense of fear regret, and regret mm-hmm. and can help you gain perspective to move forward. But I also think it could lead you to making a different decision, right? When you project it out and say, whoa, like particularly if you're making a people decision, you're about to lay off people and you start to think about it. Is this the best thing for the company? You know, 10 months from now, 10 years from now, it might influence you to make a different decision. So I don't think it matters what decision you make, but I just love playing it out in time and just sort of trying it out for size, if you will, before you actually make the decision. I think it's a really great tool. Yep. Something else that came up in my mind in in reading your book and thinking about this decisiveness of these great leaders is, you know, and the theme of our podcast is lead from the heart. Mm. So I'm wondering the speed of decision making, how many of these CEOs or is it a preponderance of CEOs that are just purely rational beings that are (laughs) analyzing everything and making their choices? Or does intuition play a role in any of this? Yeah, they're actually interrelated. So highly decisive leaders we saw were those that, again, had this high velocity of decision-making, but they also take the time to learn from their decisions, which then trains their intuition to be more accurate over time, right? So they've got a larger Mm -hmm. data set. They've made more decisions over a given time period than maybe their peer. And as a result, they've got a broader set of data to draw those patterns, that pattern recognition that fuels their intuition. And then that also then is a virtuous cycle, helps them make decisions more quickly, more accurately. So it's not one or the other, I would say. They tend to have interrelated effects. But there's a big caveat here, which is context matters. So in various industries, the pace of change is moving much more quickly than, I mean, even the overall business landscape, which we know is sped up significantly. One of the best data points I saw, Richard Foster from Yale did a study looking at the lifespan of public companies over the last century mm-hmm. and found the lifespans decreased from 65 years to 23 and it's continuing to shrink, which is, I mean, that's a crazy context that we're all operating in. But for even you know some of the technology companies, it's moving even more quickly. So likely acting just on pure intuition is going to leave you falling behind because it's built off of data in the past, which may or may not be true in the future. So what we saw with the really, really decisive leaders that are very effective, they balance the heuristics with the data-driven analytics. And it's truly a balance. They don't over-index on too much analysis and they don't over-index on intuition. You mentioned heuristic, so you know, it makes me think of Daniel Kahneman. And he has suggested that obviously you pour your heart into all the analytics you can get your hands on, but that ultimately when you make a decision, that you sort of you know tap into that intuition. What feels you know? Ask your heart. What's the right answer here? And so what I'm hearing is just exactly that: that they're rigorous. They're using every piece of data they can get their hands on, but through their own development, experience, and decision making, over and over and over, they're getting to a point where this feels like the right call. Is that a good summary? Yeah, it's a great summary. We did see that some of the most highly intelligent individuals struggled to be decisive um, because they they would get stuck on the analysis piece and not pull back to say... I tweeted that out, actually. Oh, I you? thought that was really great. Yeah, because I understand it. You can get too caught up in that. See all so, this great nuance and complexity and the next data cut and the next data cut, and then you lose sight of what really matters. And you also go into fear, yes. which is, oh, man, there's all this and it's ambiguous. And yeah, so I think you've done a really great job of nailing the decisiveness piece. So let's move on to the next one, which is what you call engage for impact. Mm-hmm. So tell us what this means and how it plays out. Yeah, this is really about having a goal or intent in how you connect and align the myriad set of stakeholders across the organization and then the broader industry or network you operate within. So the CEOs we saw that were really strong on engaging for impact, like one of them called it this art of constructive dissatisfaction. How do I keep this myriad set of stakeholders 
just at the right level of dissatisfaction in a constructive way. Because what's going to make your customers happy might not ultimately make your shareholders happy. Or if you were going to maximize happiness or you know satisfaction with your employees, that might not match with what your customers want. There are natural tensions in a business. And the CEOs who engage with impact really recognize at the end of the day, it comes down to people. And they recognize that they are the ones who have to engage in a way that moves this myriad set of stakeholders that are naturally in tension with each other towards a given impact. And, you know, what we saw is those CEOs that were too likable, too agreeable, frankly, maybe too nice or focused on being liked, were not effective at doing this. It was not associated with success. Now, one of the pushbacks we always get was, does that mean like the bad guys always win, right? Or you have to be a tough or a jerk? The answer is no. That's actually a false dichotomy. What you really see is at either end of the spectrum of likability or agreeableness, you're unlikely to be successful. There's been some really interesting research by, I don't know if you know Christine Porath at Georgetown University, but she studied civility in the workplace and found that like a significant driver of executive failure is an insensitive, abrasive, and bullying style. So the answer is not to be a jerk. The other answer is not to be a pushover, frankly, focused on being liked. It's really this Goldilocks principle of actually almost 70% of the high-performing CEOs in our study effectively balanced kind of this need of driving a profit and the people needs in the business. We call them kind of the smiling cheetahs. They're aggressive, they have intent, we're going towards a goal, and they do it in a way with a smile, right? They're willing to embrace conflict. We had Gary Ridge, the CEO of WD-40 on a few weeks ago, and he's sort of a perfect example of what you're describing. And I think as I was reading your book, my takeaway was you need to be likable, but you can also be demanding. And I think that's the piece that people conflate is that if you're likable, then you're going to get yourself into trouble. And But you can be both. And you're saying these CEOs really straddle that line, right? Correct. And they did, I would say, three things really well. Number one, they had a clear intent for their engagement with other stakeholders. So they had a goal. I'm trying to move this stakeholder to X. There's an objective out of this conversation or this meeting or this interchange or this email. The second is that they took the time to really listen and gather perspectives versus assuming that they knew what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. They were really good at asking questions and listening so they can use that information to better help move and align a group of people towards that goal. Where we saw CEOs get in trouble is when they made those assumptions and really didn't get out and gather the perspectives by asking questions and listening. And the third thing that they did really well was they treated relationships like anything else. They built routines. It's tough when you're really busy. Your your time and your team are your big assets as a CEO. And if you don't have a routine to effectively harness your time, you're often likely to leave relationships behind. And so a lot of them had you know, practices to make sure that they were connecting with people, taking the time to gather those perspectives, and they built them into routines in the business. More like just regularly scheduled meetings, or are they doing something unique? Yeah, I think it's a combination. So some of it is the basics around rewards and recognition around like handwritten notes. They have a variety of very personal ways of connecting, with, particularly with their employee base, but sometimes it's with customers or people outside their business. But ways of building that relationship over time, recognition of birthdays or spot bonuses, or you know, some of them use things like engagement surveys to measure and then drive action plans. There's a variety of different tools. So certainly some of that. There's a real thoughtfulness in what you just described. Is that consistent in the CEOs? So I think the mechanisms that they use to do that are not consistent. I find that they're very personally driven, right? So some individuals will pop into an office and chat about like the new watch that that employee has bought, right? Because they know that employee loves watches and it's a way to connect and engage with this key developer who's critical for the next product release. Others will, you know, there was the um, former CEO of Extended Stay Hotels would talk about writing hundreds and hundreds of letters to say thank you to employees. I think the methods are actually quite different and they have to be authentic to the leader But the motivation is to connect with people and demonstrate that you care about them. And I think that's what's standing out here. Exactly. So interestingly, I think the piece that often doesn't always get discussed is these leaders personally care, but they, to your point earlier, while directly challenging 
particularly their employees, to be at their best. But don't you find that when people feel you care, that that almost creates the foundation for being demanding? So in other words, if I were working for you and you demonstrated that you valued me, that you were you know, really interested in me and wanted me to succeed, that when you challenged me to do better or to elevate my performance in any way, shape or form, that I would respond more instinctively, positively to that, knowing that you're doing this in a benign way. Exactly. Yes? Exactly. I'm not sure if you read Kim Scott's work on radical candor, but it's exactly what you just described. I think it's one of the better articulations of how leaders can support their people. It's got to be both. When you personally care, you open the door to really challenge in a way that people can hear and receive and act on because they want to. You're building the trust over time because they know you care. Thank you. I'm in total agreement and actually just excited to talk about this because I think it makes me feel like if I look back on the people that I learned the most from, they were the people that implied in no uncertain terms that you could do better. Yes. And you maybe need to do better. Right. So and those are difficult conversations to have with people that many of us steer clear of because we think we're going to get pushback. But when people look back on their careers, the the leaders that they most admire and revere and, you know, appreciate in the sense of what they did for them are the ones that pushed them, challenged them, expected them to get higher and maximize their own potential. Right. I mean, that's kind of what you're saying. And it excites me. Yeah. Early in my career, I was working on a production system transformation at a really large 4,000-person truck manufacturing plant. So think steel-toed boots, glass protectors, you know, big, hot plant. And we were running both myself and a guy named Bob, who was my counterpart on the client side, on the truck manufacturing side, running an implementation team. It was tough stuff. We were changing their jobs Mm -hmm. and they were going through a union vote. So we invited the union rep, of course, to be part of the implementation team, to be inclusive. And he was such a yes man in our meetings, super pumped, very positive, but he would go down to the pilot area on the plant and totally bash the transformation effort, how it was terrible, how it was going to destroy jobs and make their work harder. And it was a seminal moment for me in my career because Bob grabbed me, walked down on the floor, grabbed, we'll call him Randy, not going to say his name, (laughs) grabbed Randy. Mm -hmm. We went into an office and Bob looked at Randy and said, here's what I'm seeing on the floor. Here's what I'm seeing in our meetings. It's inconsistent and hypocritical. And if I were to call your wife, how do you think she would feel about you? And Randy stopped and he looked at Bob and he said, no, I get it. And from that moment on, it was night and day in terms of the consistency, the the true support of the effort on the floor, the pushback as well in our meetings, but honest pushback. And I thought back to that moment and I thought, you know what, Bob, number one, he knew this guy, he knew his family, he knew the situation enough to have that conversation and draw in the family context. Mm -hmm. Number two, he did it privately in a way that was not embarrassing. No one else heard about this. He was giving Randy a chance. He didn't call him names. He didn't say, you're terrible. He said, here's what I'm hearing. And offered Randy a chance to respond and have a dialogue around that. And he did make it tough and made it personal and made it clear that it wasn't okay. And I found that to be that balance between personally caring and really challenging to make sure people are the best that they can be and what they really want to be. And I think he knew that. How did their relationship end up? It was great. Actually, this was a great story because he ended up being a critical piece of that implementation team the following year that the program ran in different areas of the plant. So he became a real supporter. And again, as I said, it wasn't that he always agreed then at that time in the room with the implementation. He was pushing Mm -hmm. back, but he was doing it in a way that he could then support when he went out on the shop floor with all the assembly workers. So it became a much more productive relationship and a, frankly, a much more non-passive aggressive, you know, not, it was yes. direct and yes. it was respectful. So I think what happened through that whole dialogue was Bob showed him respect and he showed that he knew Randy could be better than how he was behaving. And he called him up to that level and Randy responded. 
And sometimes we can't see in ourselves what other people can see that that's holding us back. That's a limitation in our behavior. And somebody that has the courage to call it out, I think, does not only the business a whole lot of good, but the relationship a whole lot of good. So I'm happy that it ended up well. I want to transition to number three on your list, which is I'm, you know, reading out loud to myself saying, yes, 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 relentless, <laughs> relentless reliability. So this, in my mind, really suggests that people respond well to leaders who display really great consistency in their behavior. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we realize the impact of inconsistency in our behavior. So tell mm-hmm. us what this is and why I think trust building is really the outcome of this. Yes, yes. So there are two levels to reliability. I think we'll talk a lot about the personal level, which is what you touch on here, kind of you personally as a leader showing up consistently, you know, being a woman or man of your word. And then there's a second level, which is kind of how do you build reliability into the organization, which we'll table for a second. Um, On the personal front, I think about the value of consistency kind of two ways. First is a practical lens. So being consistent reduces ambiguity for your team and your organization, right? In a world that's becoming more and more complex and your teams are dealing with more ambiguity everywhere, as a leader, you want to simplify and reduce that, right? And one way to do that is to show up consistently. It takes one degree of that complexity out from everyone. So to the extent that they know the types of questions you're going to ask, to the extent that they know how you're going to show up and run a meeting, they're not wondering and taking up that additional mental capacity trying to predict, am I going to get Jekyll or Hyde today? you're removing that for them. And I think we've all had leaders where you just, you never know what you're going to get when you walk in the meeting. I was talking with a leader recently and they said, you know, I've got this boss and they described him like a pelican. They would kind of hang glide in circles above the playing field and then occasionally swoop in without warning. And (laughs) showering them with things that they didn't enjoy <laughs> over what was going on. Yeah. And it was, you know, it ended up being correlated to long transatlantic flights. So I guess maybe ultimately predictable, but you contrast that with something like, like Bill Emilio, who's the CEO of Avnet, who responds to any email within 24 hours. He's known for relentless reliability. You know, when you leave a meeting with him, there's going to be a very clear to-do list. He's going to follow up with you on the agreed upon time. Like it's very clear what the expectations are and he doesn't leave anything to guess. He makes those expectations very clear. It reduces that ambiguity of like, when's the Pelican going to descend? So there's that practical lens. Second, there's a relationship lens. So I'm not sure if you're aware of the book, you know, Trusted Advisor by David Meister about how to build trust, but he has a trust equation that he writes about in the book. And reliability is one of the key components in the numerator of that equation. So trust in his research is a factor of credibility plus reliability plus professional intimacy. All of that is cut by the denominator, which is self-interest. And so while consistency isn't the only element of trust building, it's a very important element. And you know, fundamentally, showing up consistently is hard to do. These CEOs were talking about a lot of mental resilience to be able to have a really tough board conversation and turn around and have a town hall with their employees where they rally them to climb this impossible mountain, you know, under threat by you know Goliath in the industry. It's really difficult to do. Elisa Villanueva Beard, who's CEO of Teach for America, talked about sometimes she just pulls up outside the office and has to sit there for 10 minutes, put on her game face, you know, in between meetings or leaving home and leaving stuff behind. It's a lot of mental resilience to show up how you want to show up in a consistent manner. What's the self-interest denominator? I didn't understand that. Mm. Yeah, so... Um, it's a lot of math, by the way. Yeah, it is. I was like, this is fascinating that we're talking about trust and there's an equation built in, right? I actually find it exactly. really useful when you're struggling with someone and you feel like they don't trust you or you don't trust them to think about, well, gosh, do I not think they're credible in what they do? Are they not showing up reliably or consistently? Do I not have any kind of intimacy or relationship or know anything about them? Or do I feel like they're doing this for themselves as opposed to the good of the organization? That's the self-interest piece that you just don't trust that they're in it for the right reasons. And that can be very detrimental to building trust, of course. And so if I think there's a moment, if you are that leader that people don't trust, you've got to ask those tough questions of, do people think I'm in it to line my own pocketbook? Or do people think I'm in it to 
help this organization reach the goals we've collectively set? Or am I, you know, am I here to continue to grow employment? Am I here to change the industry? Or am I just here for myself? And if people perceive that you're there for yourself, you're going to have a really difficult time being trusted. So what's the intention then that you need to set? In other words, that you're not perceived as being, uh, I just had this conversation with a client today who's working with a project manager and the project manager is, is not performing. And part of the reason that this person isn't performing well is because he's wearing on his sleeve this ambition of getting a promotion. So everything is everything he's doing is self-serving mm-hmm. and people are kind of annoyed with yeah. that. But we all want to do well in our career and progress and get recognition. And so what's the intention that I would need to set so that I can still sort of accommodate some self-interest while really being perceived as being much more focused on other people and the success of the organization, my team, et cetera. Yeah. The reality is as you get more senior, you absolutely cannot be successful in reaching that next level. Or if you're at the CEOC, being successful without enabling those underneath you and around you in their own achievement, right? And their own goals. So this direct report or you know leader who is out for himself if that is at the expense of everyone around them if they're taking credit as opposed to giving credit when successes are won they over time they need to recognize that they are not going to progress upwards because you're raised on the shoulders of many let's be honest as a ceo you do very little alone it is all about interdependence right so the independent ceos two out of three independent CEOs were in the low performing bucket. So Mm -hmm. the reality is, yes, everyone wants to achieve, but it can't be at the expense of others because these are the individuals that are going to help the team succeed. And so it's tempering how you go about that ambition to ensure you are sharing credit, to ensure you're developing others in their career. That's how you counter the self-interest. Well, wonderful answer. I'm going to ask you if, just to use the math again, (laughs) is the common denominator of these top managers, these top CEOs, that they are generous and thoughtful and anxious to see people grow and become more and generous with their recognition of people? Is that a component of this? I think I would love to say yes, 100%, but the reality is no. I think you and I both know that. I do think it is an important component, but I think it is something that leaders struggle with, for sure. But would it make them better if they did it, I guess is the question. Agreed. Yes. I personally believe over the course of a career. So if you were to tell me in a one-year time period, does it make you necessarily better in achieving the goals? I would say probably not. But when you look over an entire career, multiple career chapters, multiple companies, the followership that you build, which is critical to a leader's success that we just talked about, is impossible to achieve if you are out for yourself and stepping on others. At some point, it will come back to bite you. And I think it's an interesting measure that I have seen some leaders apply later in their careers to look at how many other CEOs have I borne out of my team or developed out of my teams? Am I a talent exporter into this world because I am developing people to be at their best? Or am I crushing careers? And do I have people who won't follow me role to role? I think that will come to catch you and hinder your success over time in the long haul. So this wasn't really in the book, but you're sort of surfacing it in my mind. So I'm going to ask it. And I'm certainly you have an answer for it. How do these top CEOs tamp down their egos? (laughs) The best I have seen can hold, almost hold their ego objectively. I mean, the ego is important. An ego is actually a natural human Mm -hmm. element. It's what allows us to pass someone on the side of the street who might be homeless and continue with our life. It's part of who we are. But I think the best CEOs recognize and harness that to allow them to do tough things, to have a North Star, to have the courage to move forward, but also recognize when it can get them into trouble. And the best CEOs are humble enough to ask others to hold them accountable if they fear that they can't keep that in check. 
But that really requires a level of self-awareness that I think people often are on a journey on over time. And it's something I think we should all strive for, right? The awareness of where we're strong, where we're not as strong, where do we need people to hold us accountable? How do we complement ourselves so that we don't get tripped up by our ego or something else? So the best, you know, try to have trusted relationships on their team where they have someone who can close the door and say, you really blew that one. You were too cocky or you were too focused, you know, whatever it might be. If you're a CEO and you don't have someone who's doing that to you occasionally because none of us are, nobody's perfect, then you're at risk of having some blind spots there. Well, you know, as you said really astutely, I think it's not a question of being a CEO. This impacts all of us. In fact, I think Dr. Keltner at Cal UC Berkeley, you know, he's shown that you give anybody power and they're going to abuse it. Yep. All of us, unfortunately, sort of a human instinct. And I'm sure there are people shaking their heads saying, not me, but the experiments that he've done are pretty, yeah. <laughs> pretty unbelievably conclusive that we do. And so the ego component of it, as you said, it's a strength and you need it. You can't get to be a CEO without one, but any strength overused at times can be a weakness. And I think you have to keep it in check. And the idea of having a conscience, i.e., designated people to keep you honest, I think is a really great tool. Mm-hmm. So the fourth behavior is adapt boldly. And uh, you make this great example. It's sort of painful to read it, but <laughs> you, you said, you know, we're all familiar with companies and these are these are current companies. Really, they're all gone, but Blockbuster, Kodak, Borders, maybe Barnes and Noble soon, based on what I was reading today. These are organizations that have failed to really adapt. And this is what this is about. So tell us about what adapting boldly looks like and how do you cultivate this? Because this one, I think, is the the harder wall to climb for some people. Yeah, it's difficult. One of the, just because it jumped to mind, one of the best quotes was a former CEO who described to me, he was a COO before he was promoted. And he didn't realize he was renting the antenna of his CEO. The antenna being like, you know, watching out for the future, being aware of how the organization needed to adapt, helping set that vision. He didn't know how much he was renting that antenna until he was promoted into the role and recognized, oh no, I don't have that antenna. <laughs> I was relying on someone I else's see. antenna. So I, it is challenging. This is a tough one. The leaders that we saw that were really strong on adapting boldly did two things. One is they were able to let go of the past, which is so much easier said than done. The second thing that they did was they were very future focused, so very biased to thinking about the future. So on the letting go of the past piece, you know, the reality is it always sounds scarier than it plays out in reality. Like we, eight times out of 10, we imagine the future, you know, if I let go of this great practice or trait behavior that has worked really well in the past, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. I'm going to lose my job. The company's gone to business, whatever. You go down dire straits and well, more often that's not the case. So I think those that are willing to adapt boldly are willing to really surgically look at what they've done in the past and and be willing to evaluate what needs to change. What do I need to destroy? What do I need to blow up? What do I need to do differently in order to succeed in the future? That's not a human thing, though. No. You know, John Cotter's work shows that most leaders can't get people to change because people resist so much and it's our instinct to resist change. So if you were coaching me, for example, on my leadership and said, Mark, you need to be much more ahead of what's coming and adapting boldly here. How would you influence me to embrace change on my own, moreover, get other people to follow me? Yeah. Number one, I would say it's normal. I agree. Cotter had it right. It's human nature grounded into us from the days when we were hunting and gathering, right? Change is threatening and we're wired to be skeptical. So what I would say is often the negative framing of giving up what has worked is so hard for us humans. And so one of the things is to flip that on its head and give it a positive spin. And so focus on embracing the new. So what have you done for the very first time in your life in the last six months? I have to say, when I first got asked this question, I was like, oh, I'm sure there's a lot. And I sat down with my daughter, who's 11, and she rattled off a list of about 25 things that she had done for the very first time in her entire life. And I was like, gosh, you know, in midlife, that's a lot harder. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for you or even for your organization, what new process or practice or product have you embraced in the last month or two months or three months? Like, is there an opportunity here to celebrate what's new as opposed to focusing on stopping 
the old, because I think the positive framing you can get excited around because there's new potential to try something for the first time and it can unlock willingness where there might not be willingness. Barbara Bradley Haggerty wrote a book called Life Reimagined for those of us in midlife. <laughs> Reevaluating. It's actually a very well done book. And there was a quote in there that says, every stage of life, you should be a rookie at something, <laughs> which I really like. So I love that. So instead of, again, focusing on like, what do I need to change? And you're, you're shackled to the past and what's exist. Try a blank slate. Try to take a blank sheet of paper. Try your organization from scratch. Try your roles from scratch. Challenge yourself to ask, what really have you done for the very first time as a team or a leader or a person in the last one month, three months? And then practice, again, just embracing, you know, take the different way home from work. (laughs) Get lost. It's wonderful coaching. So thank you. Those are some really wonderful examples. And I I just love the idea of inherent in that is that if you're a rookie all the time, then you're always in some period of discomfort in your life, right? You're not just cruising. You're not just comfortable. And you're going to pick things that you might be interested in learning the violin or playing golf or whatever. But it brings you to this level of I don't feel like I'm an expert. And that that has a major shift in your consciousness, I think, just in terms of how you approach everything. So I love that. Yep. It forces you to ask questions as opposed to assume the expert role. As we get more senior in our organizations, we tend to want to be the expert. And you lose that magic of because I'm uncomfortable or because I'm in a role for the first time or doing something new, I'm maybe not asking the questions I need to be asking to open up potential actions that I otherwise wouldn't hear about. The other thing I would say on on Adapt Boldly, take care to measure the diversity of your network and your information flows. So how diverse is the inflow and the information and the people that you interact with? Because again, the future focus element of this is making sure you have enough diversity so you can make connections across disparate pieces of information. And what you read too, right? Exactly. And the CEOs that we talked to, we supplemented with interviews, the, the quantitative research The CEOs that were successful doubled the amount of time, doubled the amount of time that they were thinking one year out into the future, not current year, not current quarter, but out into the future. They doubled the amount of time that they were spending thinking about that compared to the role just prior to CEO. Mm. So they actually changed their time allocation here. And one place they did not steal that time from was customers. So they did not reduce the amount of time that they spent with customers, which was a critical piece of the information flow to fuel that future orientation. Who did they steal it from? Ah. I'm just kidding. (laughs) 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 I'm just wondering. All right, Kim, I want to transition us here. Before you go, we have a tradition on our podcast that we call the heartbeat round. And I get more feedback on these podcasts about this segment than anything else. So I'm going to keep it going. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you 10 quick questions, and I'm going to ask you to please answer each one in a heartbeat. And it just helps us to know you more personally, but just more insights into your thinking and fantastic knowledge, by the way. So you ready? Yes. All right, here we go. The one book that influenced your life the most? Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis. Skill improvement you're working on right now? Decisiveness. (laughs) Hmm. One of the four. Uh Uh-huh. The worst piece of advice you've ever received. You should write a book. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Actually, anything related to wait to have kids, don't wait to have kids, opining on family timing with regards to my career. (laughs) Very good. The quality you most admire in other people. The quality I most respect is an internal locus of control or ownership for what you're doing versus blame and excuses. But the quality I most admire is being an audacious visionary. Wow. Very good. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? Mm, For business, Harvard Business Review, but for fun, backpacking magazine. The one rule you'd make if you knew everyone had to follow it? Gaining an open and humble self-awareness of their strengths and development areas. I love that. The single quality that derails the most leadership careers? I would say failing to move quickly to get the team that you need to do what you need to do for the next chapter. 
quote that best captures your life philosophy? <laughs> so I would say don't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, <laughs> which what I mean by that is fit to context really matters. So you can be a great leader, but it's unlikely you'll be a great leader in every context. So it's about getting people in roles where they can really be their best because life really starts to sing then. So as I tell my kids, when people feel good, they do good. And it's really hard to feel good when you're in a role that's poor fit to your strengths. Fantastic. The leader of any era, and I'd like it to be a male and a female. So two part question, the leader of any era you most admire Ooh. or respect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I should have distinguished that or not. Um, <laughs> so the leader of any, so I have a female that first came to mind was Mother Teresa. I guess I would argue she was a leader, especially if you define that as the breadth of impact that she had. Absolutely. And then I might have to say, hmm, I know this was on a prior podcast. This might be cheating. Lincoln clearly jumps to mind. But somebody like mm -hmm. Mahatma Gandhi, I personally respect quite a bit. Fantastic. And then finally, number 10, the lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier mm. in your life. So I would say having your own definition of success that's consistent with your personal values. I think it's so easy to get seduced by society's definition of success. Fantastic. So when you don't know yourself you know, deeply enough or don't have, you know, if you have dissonance between how you define success and how society does, people can get really twisted up. And it's when you see poor behaviors. I think we've all been there at some point in our lives. So I'm, I'm certain that that idea resonates. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for those wonderful questions. And as we close here, I'd like to ask you if you have any final thoughts, anything we didn't cover. I tried to pour through the book and really dig into what I thought was the most important, but you might have a different thought. So is there any last thing you want to make sure everybody hears? You know, I would just say it's pretty easy to look around and say, you know, oh, that person is successful because of their title or their net worth or their connections. And I would say having grown up personally in competitive environments surrounded by really high achievement driven, intelligent people, it's really easy to look around and say, look, you got to climb the ladder or generate the highest net worth. And this may sound counterintuitive given I've studied CEOs for the last five years and worked with them for much, much longer than that. But I learned that success is actually much more fluid than we take it to be. There are so many moments I have seen where it is in the eye of the beholder, where expectations shift implicitly and people don't realize that. And and look, this is because each of us bring our own biases and our values that we apply, you know, and judge or view a different situation. And so, you know, being clear on the goal and the definition of success and the methods to get to that success is really, really important. Like I've become a huge believer that expectation management is such a critical skill, which serves us well in all aspects of life. Define expectation management. So what you expect from me in this relationship and what I expect of you and having that conversation up front and then regularly revisit it. And you can see it between a board and CEO around expectations. You can see it when you take a volunteering role in your community. And I think there's a lot of places where we aren't clear or we don't revisit what those expectations are. And someone's implicit expectation starts to shift. And then when it's not met, I think someone said, you know, expectation minus reality equals success. So, if, if you don't actually exceed expectations, you're not going to be viewed as successful. That's, that's fantastic because I think this is one of those, you know, people are thinking they're ready for a promotion and then they don't get it and they can't understand why they're not getting it and why they're not being recognized and seen as that person. And it very well might be that they aren't locked in with the people that are making their decision, i.e. their boss, on what it is that... I'll give you an example. I, I was up for a big role and I didn't get it and it made absolutely no sense to me. And so I talked to my boss and I said, well, you have to tell me, you know, just tell me honestly, why didn't I get this? Because I kind of felt like I was there. And he said, you are in every aspect. He said, you know, I'll tell you and I'll tell the guy who got the job that you're better in everything except for one thing. And the one thing was, you don't share with other people. You don't show mm. people what you're doing. 
And I said, it never crossed my mind that that was important because I was sharing within my own team. I'm teaching everybody who works for me. I wasn't thinking that it was my role to influence my peers or even people mm -hmm. that were, you know, senior to me. And he said, do, do that and you'll be ready. And so it was just a matter of a few weeks before I got an entirely other opportunity, but it was this blind spot that he never articulated and I never probed for. And you're saying, take the responsibility and probe for it yourself. And I love that. Exactly, yep. Well, you're wonderful. I can't thank you enough. Really, really wonderful insight. And I'm going to thank you on behalf of everybody listening in. You're just incredibly informed and really fun to talk to you, and, but really terrific ideas. And I wish you fantastic success with the CEO next door and uh, hope we'll do it again sometime. Excellent. I'd love that. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Kim. All righty. Bye-bye. Before we go, I want to thank my team, Eric Oz and Randy Yant, and to all of you who intentionally introduced our podcast to friends and colleagues. In just a couple of months, we've attracted listeners in 55 countries around the world so far, and we're just getting started. And so my goal is to bring you more wonderful conversations like the one we just had with Kim, with the top leadership thinkers on the planet. And I hope you look forward to the next one. And so until the next time, I leave you with our consistent reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off.